So this reading, as Justin said, Genesis 1, chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees of the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in the, our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he was made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God, God had finished the work he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And now um, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thank be to God. God. I want to pray a prayer uh, that I might begin each time through this whole series. So would you bow your heads for prayer? Father, we want to live and work to your praise and glory. So teach us then how to live, teach us how to love, teach us how to work. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace and believing and make us more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So if you weren't here last Sunday, you won't know that for four weeks leading up to Lent, uh, we're doing a series called Made to Work, meaning God has designed us for a purpose. He's made us to work, among other things. Now, next week we're taking a break. Our church will be on uh, here during Rivendell. There'll be less people here, but Bishop Ray Smith will be taking all services. Now, the reason we're doing that starting our year this way, Made to Work, is that in 2019, we're going to spend our teaching series connecting the dots between what we learn on Sunday and what we do on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. In other words, the theme of Sundays in 2019 will be Monday. Why? The answer is because we want alignment between the gospel, and what we do midweek. Whatever you do for work, by the way, anywhere where you exert some energy, producing, ordering, creating, healing, selling, advising, nurturing, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether you're employed or self-employed or a volunteer or you're at home or in a neighborhood, whether you're looking for work or retired, no matter what you spend your time doing, we want to connect the dots between Sunday and Monday. Three reasons why. One, there have been a few times over the years in my ministry where I found someone who is a saint on Sunday, but a bully on Monday. And I'm like, wow, how, how does that happen theologically? How does it happen Psychologically, how do they not connect the dots between a servant king and, and on Sunday and not bullying on Monday, you see? 
Second reason is we all know that work takes up so much time. You're so busy. And yet perhaps you don't hear much on Sunday that seems relevant to what you do on Monday. And there you are slogging it out with all the expectations that are placed on you. And I'd like to learn to change that. And I want you to help me. This is the first time in 10 years that I've done a series on work. And I need you to talk to me. I don't just say, oh, that talk was no good. Say, how can it be improved by March or April? To that extent, contact me. I'm eminently contactable online. There's also a Connect card at the end of your pews that you can write down your thoughts for. I'll give you an example. Someone wrote to me last week and said they're uncomfortable with my list of vocations in the Bible, namely that I put slave as a vocation under tradie. And I wrote back saying, you're right, you're exactly right. We had a discussion about the use of Colossians 3, etc. There's an economist at 8.30, and I said, I need to meet with you because you think all day, every day, about what work means in a context like Australia. So he's going to meet me, and he's going to lecture me, and I'm going to love every moment of it. I'm going to feed on it. Of course, we're bringing the Bible to bear, but I want a full discussion between us and others who will teach during the year. The third reason is that churches can miss people, especially, I think, between the age of 25 and 40. Now, that may not be you, but listen to this. I think the gospel enthralls children because they come alive with the stories. The gospel challenges university students because they love the cut and thrust of ideas and arguments. I really believe the gospel connects with parents because parents want so desperately for their children to be raised with hope and divine love. And I think the gospel connects with older people as we often find ourselves rethinking life and meaning. But there's so many right there in the middle of the so-called rat race, climbing the greasy pole, climbing up the corporate ladder and hoping like, like anything that there's something at the top. We're not sure if there is, but you just know you're so busy and so busy you can't connect the dots disconnecting in many ways from church, hoping to make it to church once a month, feeling disconnected with what's said. Help me. Throughout the whole of 2019, we'll be making the connections, and to that end, in the second half of this year, we'll be working our way systematically through the book of Daniel and the book of James, both perfect for this end. Dorothy Sayers wrote an interesting article called Why Work During the Second World War, and she said, I urged a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work. I love that whole idea, in Christ. She wrote that work should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of work itself, rather than money, is what she's saying. And that man, made in God's image, should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well, a thing that is well worth doing. What is the well worth doing thing that you're doing? And what does a thoroughgoing revolution in Christ look like? Well, the second talk of the series, I want to connect the dots between creation and productivity. Last week, I tried to connect the dots between worship and enthusiasm, namely that if you think of work as your identity or a God, a God to worship, it'll crush you in the end. Identity always does that if it's outside of God. But we said that it's the Messiah, Jesus, you're serving. And that'll give you a levity, a lightness of touch as you go about serving him in what you, whatever you do, says the Apostle Paul. 
a principle this week, and the principle is this. Because God works, we work. You read the Bible, God works, God works all the way through the Bible. And we are workers, not just because it makes us money, although that's important in the world in which we live. Not just because it feeds a family or, or even stops boredom, although it's, it, it does do that, as we learned last week. Or even just that you see stuff that has to get done and you think I should go and do it. No, we are workers because in some sense we as human beings created in his image, we share the divine nature. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard not to be at work. A loss of, it's a loss of something in terms of the way we connect with our creator. We, because God works, we work. It's the same argument made when we say, because God is a good father, I want to be a good father, a good parent, you see, because God is gracious, we show grace, because God defines justice, I want justice in this fallen world. Or rather, how about this one? We value humility, I'll tell you why, because humility comes from the very heart of God. What is it to be God? It's to be humble. Philippians chapter 2. Or put simply, we love because he first loved us. Same idea. We work because God is first a worker. We're going to see that from Genesis chapter 1. And we'll circle back to the gospel, to the Christian message at the end. Because listen to what Jesus says about God's work in John 6. He says, the work of God is this. You want to know what God is doing? To believe in the one that he sent. Or in Christ, Paul writes that we know that God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And he works in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. That's what I want. So let's go to the beginning, to Genesis. There's no getting around the importance of Genesis, to living, loving, and working in God's world. At the beginning, God created meaning. In the beginning, we find out about first things, design, origin, purpose. And you can see an outline on pages 8 and 9 of your orders of service. I submitted this outline before I wrote the talk. And only in writing the message have I realized I've bitten off more than I can chew. But plow on we shall. You might like to con consider some of these things, write notes and ponder them afterwards uh, for your own meditation. Two things today, what you learn from Genesis 1 and what you learn from God as the one who works in Genesis chapter 1. What you learn from Genesis 1, once you get past the six-day creation debate. Um, and secondly, what you learn from the God who works. So first point, you, they've been debating Genesis 1 for, for centuries, millennia, even how to read Genesis chapter 1. And I don't want to sweep the debate under the carpet. But I do believe that Genesis 1 was written in part thousands of years ago to counter the ancient Near Eastern myths of their age, the age in which it was written. It's polemic, in other words. But it also has something to say to our generation who rejects God and hasn't yet thought through the full implications of doing that. So first, what do you learn from Genesis chapter 1 after you get past the debate? Six things. First, 
that the world is entirely and completely dependent or contingent on God, not on, for example, blind forces in nature. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why there's something and not nothing. And God shows the dependency when he says, let there be light, and there was light. The world, indeed the universe, is entirely dependent on him. This universe, vast as it is, if God did not exist, neither would the universe. That's the claim of Scripture. And if God ceased to exist, if that were possible, the universe would cease to exist in that moment. That's what the Scripture says. Because God sustains it all by his powerful word. Because he lives, we live, and so does the universe that God made. First, second thing you learn from Genesis chapter 1, there are no rivals to God as sovereign over creation. In other words, there's not two or more warring gods that made the world, and there's no dualism, good and evil, where you're not quite sure which one will win. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there were myths about how the world was created, Myths about the world being created, for example, by warring gods. Think Roman and Greek gods, but not those gods. You know, with all their stories and journeys about the way the world was made. There was one ancient Near Eastern myth that said that the waters above, which is the sky, the expanse above you, the vault or the tent that you see that's blue. You see, you see the inside of it. The waters above, we just call it a sky. But there was a myth that said that that blue expanse above us is actually a water god that was killed, and that's his carcass, what you see above you, that vault. But there are no rivals, no sort of good versus evil in the beginning. And God said, let there be the vault. And there it was, not a warring god. Upshot, when my children are afraid of the dark, when I see genuine suffering in the world and I want it to stop, I don't think, I hope God wins. What is this but paganism? I don't think that. I tell my sons and my daughters, there is one God, he has no rivals and he cares for you. Trust him. Third, the world has order and design in it, not just chaos. God said that the Land produced vegetation, verse 11. It was true according to their various kinds. And it was so, verse 12, according to their kinds. It's a profound order rather than chaos in Genesis chapter 1. I'll talk more about that um, in a moment. I'm admiring Marie Kondo from Netflix. The life-changing art of tidying up. Where does that come from? We get it from the heart of God. The life-shaping power of an ordered mind. And this world, indeed the universe, is the product of an ordered mind. It's why science is so good and not at odds with faith. The world is not the product of chaotic forces. And it's why, for example, when we meet somebody who suffers from mental health that results in hoarding, we don't say, oh, that's good. We say, how can I help you? Fourth, creation is good. This is so important. Not bad or neutral. Everything God created is good, Paul wrote to Timothy. Not bad or neutral. 
Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, he saw that the dry land and the sea was good. Same in verse 12, 18, 21, and 25, just so you get the point. That is, the creative world is not bad and to be avoided, as some Eastern religions might say, and some Gnostic thinking where we are encumbered by the body and have to live in a physical world. We want to be free from that. No, that's not Christianity. It's not Judaism, and it's not Christianity. Nor is the world intrinsically neutral, as true secular thinking ought to argue. I've got a great quote for you in a moment. In other words, in true secular thinking, the world just is even if some of us like it and some of us don't. No, in the Christian worldview, creation is intrinsically good because it conforms to God's will, not simply because we like things in the world. No wonder Jesus Christ rose from the dead. No wonder God raised him from the dead bodily because God likes the human body and the world in which he's placed it. It's just fallen, needing redemption. We'll come to that. Fifth, humans are made in his image. They're not an afterthought or slaves for the gods as it was in the ancient Near Eastern world, made to sort of serve gods as an afterthought. No, this idea, let us make man and woman in our image. That idea has changed and shaped our lives in ways that you can't even access half the time. There you are, special to God, made in his image, like living statues created to do his thing in the world, rule and reign until all things are placed under the feet of the humans he loves. We value human life. It's why we do the city care lunch for the rough sleepers of our city as we did last week. Verse 31, after God creates humans, the pinnacle of his creation, God saw all that he has made and it was very good. And the last thing you learn from Genesis chapter 1 is that the purpose of God's creation ultimately is rest chapter 2 verse 2 by the seventh day God finished the work that he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy this day is the only day that doesn't end evening morning first day evening morning second day evening morning third evening morning sixth day seventh day does not end the writer of Hebrews says that every Sabbath we take speaks of a rest to come the new heavens and the new earth that God will as he renews the earth through Jesus Christ. The place where we will rest in the sense that we'll find shalom as God has ordained it, the peace of God in a world that God will remake to his glory where he shall be king over all. The writer of Hebrews says, since there is a rest to come today if you hear his voice. This morning, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. These six things, they all have implications for God's world that we'll explore over the year. This talk, like last week, inherently dissatisfying. Over the year, we'll explore what these six things might mean. But the upshot will be, trust God, there is no rival. Order the world and build something great, even if it's small and kind to another. And treat human beings with respect. They are special to God. So special that we want them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what you learn from Genesis chapter 1. What do you learn about God then? The one who works from Genesis 1. Well, here's a few things. God's in the direction. He speaks 
chapter 1, verse 3, he said, let there be light, and his word instantly produces light. And God shines the light of the gospel into our hearts when we hear the gospel and believe, you see. He continues to do that each day that someone comes to know him through Jesus Christ. Instead of darkness within, I find light. And so we need to speak the gospel into people's lives. And we'll talk about that as the year and the series goes on. But we also need to speak at work, you see. In fact, things won't happen unless we put life into it by our words. Things don't happen because we don't speak. Here in Genesis, God speaks and it happens as a direct result. And that's a God thing. He says, let there be light. And light appears. But when we speak, we also contribute to the world in which we live. And when you contribute with your words, you create space for productivity and growth. When you direct another with humility and godliness, you give a sense to the other with whom you work. When you present yourself for scrutiny by what you say at a meeting, when you stand up and say, this is not good, you create space at your work for a healthy culture. God speaks as he makes the world. And secondly, God does. He exerts energy. The land produced vegetation. We need to find a thing worth doing and then do that thing well to make it happen. Dorothy says, says I think quite cheekily, she says of Jesus Christ, the carpenter, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare say, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. I take it he didn't cut corners. He lived in the world that his father had made. So a good question when you go to work is, is this constructive for humanity? Does it contribute? Does it build up? Even if for a season I'm deconstructing, I think one of the things I love when I see a demolition site is they're actually involved in construction, ironically, you see. Because sometimes things have to be taken apart before they are built does the thing you do produce something of value in this world that God has made? We need a robust doctrine of creation. He also appraises in verse 4. He gets above what he does to evaluate it. Does it conform to my purpose? Is it good? What a great question. I think that'd be worth doing at work, weighing up what you do. Is it good? Does it conform to the will of God, weighing this or that? Fourth, God classifies, he names things in Genesis. Verse 5, God called the day, the light, day, and the darkness he called night. Obviously, that's an English translation of the word he used. But God puts shape onto things with names. He classifies things, which is the basis in many ways of science, putting meaning onto them. And he co-opts us to do the same. In uh, Genesis chapter 2, God brings the animals to the man to see what he would name them. And I guess that's why we name a thing. It makes sense of them. It imbues the thing with dignity and it tells other people how to respond to them. Those of you who are my Facebook friends who know I've been on a little, a little uh, reflection recently on the humble white ibis in Sydney. I learnt last week from my children that everybody in Sydney have been calling them bin chickens for about 10 years. Is this true? Can you hand up? How many of you knew that white ibis were called bin chickens before last week? 
Well, half of you now know what I found out last week. Interesting, though, by the way, when I see a white ibis, I think, oh, that's a nice, interesting bird. I don't notice that they're in bins any more than any other bird. Now that I know they're called bin chickens, I sort of want to run them over. And look, I'm not, I'm not here to defend a, a white ibis. I'm here to say, be careful when you name something. Be careful if you use the word racist or bigot or lefty or... By what you name something, you give it dignity and you teach others how to respond to them. Fifth, God regulates, he orders, and perhaps this is the biggest one for work, because work is the process of taking something without an order and putting some order into it to make it useful. Builders, for example, are doing that all day long, sometimes not so good, witness the opal building in the Olympic Park. But they also do it well. Cleaners and gardeners are taking something without order and putting order into it. Teachers and doctors, I take it in Genesis chapter 1, the days denote order. There was evening and there was morning the first day, evening, morning, second day. When I explained this to high school students when I was a youth minister, I say it's a bit like a filing cabinet. There was evening where God pulls out a file called Let There Be Light. And there was morning, the first, there was evening and then morning, the first day. Is that right? Help me with the order. There was evening, right? And then morning, the first day. Evening and morning, the second day. Evening and morning, the third day. Evening and morning, the fourth day. Who keeps filing cabinets? ordered people. I don't think that Genesis 1 are necessarily periods of time, although they might be, either 24 hours or long periods of history. Whatever else you say about the creation debate, they definitely denote order. Evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. And on day one, God separates the light from the darkness and on day four, he fills what he separates by creating the sun and the moon and the stars. That's order. On day two, God separates the waters above the sky and the waters below the ocean. And then on day five, he fills what he separated with fish in the waters below and birds in the waters above, except for the ibis, who's definitely below. On day three, God separates the land from the oceans. And on day six, he fills what he separated with animals and human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation. Day one to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six, and then he rests on day seven. God is ordered. In contrast, Richard Dawkins says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no God, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's honest. But we don't dance to DNA's music. We live in God's world. This is my Father's world and we hum to his rhythm of grace. God also produces, filling and the world teeming with life and reproducing, and then he co-ops us, asking human beings to do what he does, filling the earth and subduing it, which means tending to it and stewarding it, not ruining it, which is what we do in our sin and our greed. We live in a fallen world. So God says, find a good thing and go and do it. And lastly, God 
upholds, he sustains the universe. In the Old Testament, he sustains the universe by his powerful word. But when you get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you find that God sustains this world not by Adam of old, not by that human being and human beings in his succession, sons and sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but rather he rescues this fallen world by a second Adam, and his name is Jesus Christ. God has not abandoned humanity to our sin, nor has he abandoned this world to be ruined for our stubbornness. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that the eternal Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the inheritor of all creation. For in the eternal Son, named Jesus Christ at his birth, in the eternal Son, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, you name it, all things have been created through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ, and that's because the eternal Son is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And here's the key, if you know Jesus Christ, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, not in the first Adam, and through Jesus Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by, here it is, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. His cross is key. His cross brings sinful creature back to her holy creator. The cross brings a willful person like me back to God who should send me to hell so that in Christ I can now say, along with the Apostle Peter, that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, everything, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You can be like God with all his humility and service and grace in this fallen world, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by uber desires. We believe in the one he sent. That's the work of God in our hearts. And then we go to work because he works. Let's pray. I want to pray a prayer based around the three suggestions of how a worker can glorify God from John Piper. And this is on page one of your orders of service. Father, we are dependent on you for our salvation and we go to work utterly dependent on you. Without you we can't breathe, we can't move or think or feel or talk, not to mention be spiritually influential. We want to get up in the morning and let you know that we are utterly dependent on you. And Father, help us to go to work and live our lives with absolute and meticulous honesty. Help us to be trustworthy on the job. Help us to be on time give a full day's work and help us to use our skills and gifts, the ones you've given us, and to get good at what we do. You've given us not only the grace of integrity, but the gifts of skills. I pray that we'll treasure those things that you've given us and be good stewards of our skills. We pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.